Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, Kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. The Bible tells the story of humans who want God, but they don't want God. It's like, I wish I could, but I don't want to. They, they want to have their cake and eat it too. And this is the conundrum of God's relational experience with humanity. It's that sometimes we want God. Sometimes we want God desperately. We cry out for God. We promise our heart to God. We promise our love to God. We sing our love to God. We tell God that we're never turning back and never turning away. But then God experiences the other side of the coin. We don't actually want God. Our mouth says one thing, but our life says another thing, and our pocketbook says another thing, and our habits, and our calendar, and our use of time, and what we're passionate about, and even our prayers reveal what we actually want, that we're using God as a means to an end, a way to get what we want. And it's not that we come right out and say, I don't want you, God. In fact, we're so caught up in what we do want that it hardly occurs to us that we don't want God. We just ignore God or forget God and get caught up in a million other things, good things, exciting things, important things. And God still gets the message loud and clear. God sees where we're putting our energy and where we're focused, and God knows the difference between our real love and a thin, cold smile. We want what we want, and we want our own way, and we're caught up in our own pursuits, and God gets the message loud and clear, I don't want you, God. God knows the difference between humans who want God and humans who don't. And so, down through the centuries, God has used various metaphors to try to help humans connect with how it feels for God to be wanted and not wanted. And one of the primary metaphors that God has used to try to connect with humans has been the metaphor of an affair, being cheated on, adultery. God basically says it it feels like I'm the victim of an affair. It feels like uh, I am a betrayed lover. God's experience is, I'm committed to you, but you're not committed to me. And so it's a competition of allegiances and a question of loves. And so down through the centuries, the prophets have used this metaphor over and over to describe God's experience. The book of Hosea stands as exhibit A. Now, instead of speaking for anyone else, I'll just speak for myself. When I read scripture that talks about me having an affair on God, cheating on God, that kind of scripture, I don't like it. It's hard for me to connect with. 
because that's not how I want to think about myself and my time and my energy and my money and my passions and my love. I don't want to think of myself as God's cheating lover. And I don't think I'm alone in that emotional response. In fact, the most recent Pew data from like uh, social research shows that our entire culture holds a pretty low view of people who cheat. So it's not like this is a metaphor we're going to enjoy. We, we don't want to think of ourselves in that way. And yet, this is the metaphor that God uses over and over in Scripture to describe what it feels like to be wanted and not wanted. And so, it's okay as we make our way through the book of James and we come to this Scripture today, it's okay to come with a sense of Man, this is saying something uncomfortable. This is saying something bothersome. This says something confusing. I don't like this. That is okay. And yet there's a need to remain open to God. What if this scripture is actually about you in some way? What if, and me, what if this scripture is actually the space where God has something fresh to say? What if God is different than how you had conceived of God? And so it brings us to our scripture today, James chapter 4, verse 4 through 10. Here's what James says. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. And that's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the accuser, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, my personal meditation on this scripture, it's not like this is an easy one to reflect on, but it tells me that this isn't a picture that has happened just one time in my life way back when. As I look at what is actually being described here, I realize this is a picture of something that happens in my life in different ways over and over. This dynamic of, I want God, but I don't want God. So the ancient wisdom of James says that there's a real connection between friendship and infidelity. God doesn't view our friendship with the world in neutral terms. Like we might call it just friends. But God looks at that friendship and says, 
it, it seems like infidelity. Now, is there anything to this, or is this just an example of God being like an overjealous, insecure lover? Well, it's interesting to look at what the, the latest research on infidelity actually has to say. So one of the foremost experts on affairs in the U.S. is the late psychologist Dr. Shirley Glass. Uh, New York Times calls her the godmother of infidelity research. She's worked with hundreds and hundreds of couples going through affairs. She did groundbreaking research, wrote a book called Not Just Friends. And first of all, she just notes how common affairs are. 50% of all couples married, living together, gay, straight, 50%, either one or both parties, will break their vows of sexual or emotional exclusivity during the lifetime of the relationship. And so out of those couples, in her clinical practice, working for years and years with people who had affairs, she notes that 82% of all affairs began in platonic friendship. So where, when God is saying uh, friendship with the world is enmity with me, well, Shirley Glass is saying, yeah, 82% of the affairs she worked with began in friendship. They happened to someone who was just a friend. The people who had the affairs weren't always planning on betraying their partner and their own beliefs and their moral values. They weren't intending to shatter their own sense of self as well as their own marriage. It began in friendship. And so Dr. Shirley Glass explores the anatomy of affairs and says, the point where you cross the danger zone and the infidelity begins is when you start sharing things with that friend that you're not sharing with your spouse. It's when you start uh, complaining to that friend instead of speaking with your spouse. You start building a wall to shut the, the marriage partner out and open a window to let the affair partner in. And so her work is helpful in understanding what James is saying about our relationship with God. She would tend to agree with James that God's concern about us being just friends with the world is actually a legitimate concern because that's the majority, it's where the majority of infidelity actually begins. So James says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, who is the world? The, the Greek word there, cosmos, it can be this kind of nebulous word in Scripture. It can be confusing because Scripture uses it in positive and negative and neutral ways. Like, how can Scripture simultaneously say that for God so loved the world, that's the cosmos, but also say, look, if you're even friends with the world, you're an en enemy of God? Like, uh, hello? <laughs> How does that jive? Well, it's because cosmos doesn't always mean the same thing. Sometimes this word is describing all human life. Sometimes it's describing space, the, like the planet. Sometimes it's describing the dominant value system, like the ideas, the logic, the values, the morals, the patterns, the norms of society. 
the Apostle John has this really helpful description of the world, that uh, dominant value system, as a life organized around consumption, appearances, possessions, and achievement. He says, for everything in the world, the cravings of humanity, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what you have and do, all of this comes not from the Father, but from the world. So there's this interesting question. If James is saying, I don't want you to be friends with the world, is James saying, well, you're cheating on God if you are friends with all humanity, or if you are friends with the planet? Or is James saying that it feels like you're cheating on God when you get all wrapped up in the dominant value system, when your life is organized around consumption and appearances and possession and achievement? You know, no one goes to bed and says, I think tomorrow I'm going to become an enemy of God. That's not the way we think about our life. And yet, this is what happens slowly over time as we cultivate a friendship with the world. This friendship isn't built in a day. It's built slowly over time and happens in a million different ways. It's like the grass starts to look greener on the other side of the fence. And so your life and your time and your energy and your passions and your pursuits and money get all wrapped up in the ideas and systems and logic and morals and patterns and pursuits of this age. And the life that you want is a life that you see in dominant society. It's the life that the advertising machine is trying to sell you and the Facebook, Instagram algorithms trying to sell you. And, and day after day, month after month, you embed yourself in habits and pursuits geared around consumption and appearances and possessions and achievement and your friendship with the world grows and changes and you couldn't really say when it happened but what you want changes and morphs and you change and morph and the adultery is finally full-blown when you just no longer want God somewhere in that process it's like the affair comes out into the open. What was hidden behind closed doors, what you were failing to admit to yourself, comes out into the open and you, you realize, my life is so wrapped up in other pursuits, I, I really don't want God. And the truth of every affair is that you're in love with an idea more than you are in love with a person. Because you don't really know who you're in love with. As Dr. Shirley Glass says, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence only because we don't have to mow it. Uh, in fact, 75% of people who marry their affair partner end up divorced. We, we don't know who we're actually trying to connect with. And James is actually saying something similar here. He's saying, you thought you were just friends with the world, consumption, appearances, possession, achievement. But if you keep reading the text, it turns out that the lover is actually the accuser. It's the devil, the force in this world opposed to God. And that's the grass you've chosen to mow 
and a life chasing consumption, appearances, possessions, achievements looks so full, but it ends in emptiness. Now, God could respond at this point in any number of ways. God could say, like, fine, if you don't want me, then have it your way. For a lot of people, an affair is a deal breaker. Like, affairs are what precipitate divorce and the unraveling of a life and moving out and breaking up assets and families and shifting burdens. The logic of affairs and divorce says, like, if we were applying this to God, it would be like, man, if you get that far away from God, isn't God going to turn against you and make your life just terrible? But that's not the picture that James paints of the God he knows. James says, but he gives us more grace. Grace is that which brings well-being. It's the true source of joy. It's sheer gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above, James says. So what what he's getting at is when your life has become all about what you want, God's first move isn't to make your life terrible. God's first move is to give to you, to fill your life with joy, to contribute to your well-being. So you're out there living your life completely for yourself. You no longer want God, and God's heart is breaking, and God gives you a beautiful sunset, a rainbow in the storm, genuine compliments from friends who love you, a solution that you weren't expecting to a problem you were facing, a surprise visit from an old friend. You Things like this. It's like you realize God's not making me pay. God is giving you that which brings well-being and joy because God is tirelessly on your side and God always has more to give to you. So everything that follows from here flows out of a God who is not holding you down in the relationship. If you want to run, if you want to leave the relationship, you're free to go. You're not a prisoner in the relationship, but you will be leaving a God who finds joy in giving to you and contributing to your well-being. So God gives this invitation to rebuild the relationship. God's intention is not to beat you down, but to lift you up because God wants to draw near to you. But God doesn't force himself on you. So God is putting the ball in your court. God looks at the choices that you are making and the words that you are saying. And God is asking, is this a relationship that you want? Do do you plan on still organizing your entire life around what you want? Consumption, appearances, possession, achievement? Or have you come to a place of shifting and asking God, okay, what does it look to organize my life around love for you and love for my neighbor, a willingness to reorganize your life? God knows that no amount of rules will ever fix an affair. Like no matter what safeguards are in place, you'll find your way to the one you love. Now, some Christians, of course, they they make a big list of rules. They turn all of Christianity into rules, do's and don'ts. 
uh, like if you go to these places or involve yourself in these activities, then you're being a, a friend of the world. Like they use this kind of language that we find in James. Oh, you're being a friend of the world. Can't, can't be a friend of the world. God knows that silliness. Every set of rules is full of loopholes. And so God's not looking for rules. God's looking for a relationship. God's looking to see if you have recognized who the other lover even is and if you are resisting the other lover. So can you see that chasing consumption and appearances and possession and achievement is actually cozying up to the accuser? God's looking to see if, if you recognize that. And God's asking this question about who do you love? Who are you cozying up to? Are you drawing near to God? Is your heart leaning into loving God and loving your neighbor? Are you reorganizing your life and habits around this love? So James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the accuser. He'll flee from you. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, we could easily hear this scripture in a twisted way because of how we have witnessed the words, I'm sorry in a twisted way. Like for some people, uh, I'm sorry is what you say when you want to try and change how somebody else feels about you. It's like, well, they're upset with me, but if I say those magic words, maybe I can coax them to feel differently about me and I can squeeze some form of forgiveness out of them. Uh, Or maybe we say the words I'm sorry as a way to try and force that other person to say, oh, I'm sorry too. So we're, we're actually trying to get them to say sorry. Uh, or maybe we've seen people use the words I'm sorry as a way to skip actually facing how they hurt others and the need for real change. Like someone starts to say, hey, I didn't like that. And they say, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it sounds okay, but the translation is more like, uh, leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and many of us have experienced the admission, I'm sorry, as a shame label. It's like when you say, I'm sorry, what you're actually saying is, I'm bad. I'm bad. I'm bad. And then we swallow that shame and feel like we're being defined by our worst actions, our worst moments, our worst choices. And so all those twisted versions of I'm sorry can give us a twisted picture of God's posture as we are invited to basically say I'm sorry in this text. It's like we we imagine that we're doing all of this hand washing and purifying and grieving and mourning and wailing which those are like Old Testament pictures of I'm sorry. We imagine we're doing that for God as if our sorry will somehow change God's mind about us. And we forget, wait a minute, 
God's forgiveness always precedes our repentance. It comes before our I'm sorry. So as Richard Rohr says it, God's love, God doesn't love us if we change. God loves us so that we can change. So God is not waiting for us to say sorry so that God can change how God feels about us. God already wants us to draw near. God already wants to give us joy. God already wants to care for our well-being and give us more grace and lift us up. So the grieving and the mourning and the wailing is not for God. It's for us. The spark for actions that demonstrate a new way of life only comes from genuine remorse for what you put God through and what you put yourself through and other people through. And so it's it's admitting to God, like, God, I thought this was going to work out for me, but all of my chasing has somehow left me still empty and still seeking something else. And it hurts. It just hurts. And so when we're actually ready to choose actions that demonstrate a new way of life, that is the relationship repair with God. That is the cleanup. Some people confuse cleanup with rule following uh, as if those are the same thing. Rules come from the outside. Uh, so it's like if, if your life is, if you've kind of walked away from God, uh, rules are other people saying, well, this is what you can do and what you can't do, and this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do, and don't taste and don't touch and yada, yada, yada. Relational repair comes from the inside because it's personal. And so it's very different than someone on the outside saying, this is what you can and can't do. Relational repair is you recognizing how your life has become unmanageable and how you need help. And so it's not other people involving themselves. It, it could definitely be you asking others for help. And it is you setting new boundaries for yourself, identifying here's what works and what helps me be close to God. And here's what's harmful to my relationship with God. And so it's you naming this is what orients my life towards love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And this is what orients my life towards consumption and appearances and possession and achievement. And these seasons of repair, spiritual cleanup, they can be very vulnerable. They can feel slow. They can feel difficult. And so we need this reminder over and over and over of God's word and God's heart. When we realize, I really haven't been wanting God, but I need to change that. I want to change that. God says to you, I am giving you more grace. I am contributing to your well-being and to your joy. There's always more of me for you. God says, I am drawing close to you. I'm not holding you at arm's distance. I'm drawing close. And God says, I will lift you up. 
you don't need to swallow shame for whatever you've done. I'm not going to hold you in this low, empty place that you find yourself in. There's hope. I will lift you. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.